So it's good to be with you once again. Praise the Lord. Last night we were beginning to get into the subject of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were not here, uh, I can tell you that I was trying to introduce the subject of the doctrine of the person of Jesus. It's a very big subject. It's the biggest section of theology. If you take uh, uh, the, the teaching of Scripture and the whole counsel of God, the whole realm of systematic theology, the, the biggest topic really is Jesus. It's the theme of the whole Bible. It's the theme of every book of Scripture. Every book of the Bible is either looking forward to Jesus or telling you about Jesus in the Gospels or looking back on Jesus in the Epistles. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And I was saying last night that of the 27 books of the New Testament, I think it's 23 that uh, mentions Jesus in the first verse. As soon as they start going, they start writing, talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Gospel of Jesus, Paul the Apostle of Jesus. Immediately, uh, every book of the New Testament almost is referring to, to Jesus straight away. It's uh, the main subject of the Bible. It's the main subject of world history. Jesus is the biggest figure easily, easily the biggest figure ever in uh, history. I like Christmas. One reason why I like Christmas is the whole world stops for Jesus for a few days. Even, even if you're in Jeddah or Mecca or Bangkok, no matter where you are, the world stops for Jesus for a few days. I like Christmas for that reason. Uh, I like the whole world just holding up for a few days to think about Jesus, whether they like it or not. <laughs> the whole world revolves around the person and God sent his son and put everything into the hands of his son. Salvation in the hands of Jesus, creation's in the hands of Jesus, judgment is in the hands of Jesus. When the final judgment day comes along, Jesus will be the judge. He is the center of everything. Out of his fullness, says John chapter 1, verse 16, out of his fullness have we all received one grace replacing the grace of the law. The law was given through Moses. Grace came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I was trying to introduce it to you, and I was suggesting it's such a big subject, the best thing is to go, is to go round and round it and uh, learn about the Lord Jesus Christ in the same order in which the disciples learnt about Jesus. They learnt, first of all, about what they could see right in front of them, and they realized he was the Messiah, but they were not totally clear as to what kind of Messiah. Slowly, Jesus began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer, he said to them, began to predict his cross. Then when he was risen from the dead, they started worshipping him. They never did that before the resurrection. They began to be shown that Jesus was the center of the Old Testament. Jesus spent 40 days, and if you ask what Jesus was doing in those 40 days, he was mainly teaching them how to read the Old Testament and see himself in every page of Scripture. And then the Spirit was poured out, and they began to see the total picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was suggesting that it's such a big subject that you, it's good to follow it in that kind of order, the order in which the disciples themselves found out about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I was trying to introduce the subject to you. So I made three sort of preliminary points. One is that we mustn't forget that Jesus is historical. He's a, he's a figure of history. And it's especially important in the days in which we live because uh, history is under attack at the moment from all sides. Uh, history is under attack. I was in Foyle's bookshop yesterday in uh, Charingcross Road in London, and uh, I went into the children's section, as I often do. I, I have some grandchildren. I'm always buying them books so that they take after me as they should. But um, 
and I went into the children's section and uh, one of the things I enjoy doing is reading children's history books. If you ever uh, want to learn about a subject about which you know nothing, the way to handle it is to buy some children's books on the subject because when some expert writes for children, he, he's an expert and he knows everything but he has to put it very, very simply because he's writing a children's book. Actually, it's not only children that should read children's books, you can read them as well and you will learn about all sorts of things. So I, I went into Foyle's bookshop looking for a few history books or biographies for my, for my grandchildren. There's really nothing there. There's scarcely any history uh, in, written for children in Foyle's bookshop, unlike other places in the world. In Cape Town, where I often go and uh, explore the second-hand bookshops, Cape Town being a much more old-fashioned place, and it's about 50 years behind the times. Sorry if you come from Cape Town, but it's about 50 years behind the times. And you, you get the kind of bookshops that you get in England 50 years ago. You can go into Cape Town and you find biographies, children's biographies of Einstein or, or Florence Nightingale. You, you can buy these sort of children's biographies in Cape Town. You can't do it in, in more modern cities because that, that's, that's gone now. You have to go to some very archaic place to do that. Harry Potter's there, and whole whole book, whole uh, cases full of uh, mythology and so on, and fiction and all sorts of that. That's that's there, but not history. And uh, those things are gone. We don't need to teach our children history anymore. And all sorts of things are, are under attack. And the most outrageous, the, the danger of that is that the most outrageous lies can be told, and the average person can't tell the difference. And that's, that's the biggest danger of not being interested in history. If you are not interested in history, somebody else will be telling lies and you won't know the difference. That's one reason why we should be concerned about history. And the Bible is a very historical book. Indeed, our, our, our faith is the only faith that says it's a fact of history that God sent his son. The Christian gospel begins with history. No other, no other faith does. Islam is not, a, not, not about what Allah did in history. Islam about, is about ideas and morality and ideology and Sharia law. It's not, it's not about things that God has done in history. There's no, there's no Messiah in Islam. There's no Messiah in, in Hinduism. The world religions are ideas and disciplines and experiences. The distinctive mark of the Christian faith is it says God has done something. And you can investigate, you can find out, you can, you can inquire and see what happened and what God did. Our faith is the only faith that, that does that. There's no other faith that says God stepped into the world. There's a day in the history of the calendar, AD, AD 30 or 33, in, in that month of April, a, a saviour was nailed to a cross, and three days later he was risen from the dead, and, and a few days later, 3,000 people, or 10% of Jerusalem, were, were, were saved by the out, uh, and experienced the outpouring of the Spirit, and it began rapidly to fill the Roman Empire. Within 300 years, 10% of the Roman Empire was saved. These things happened. But you can't read about them very much. In, in, no, no one talks about these events anymore. It's not only the Christian gospel. I was mentioning last night how things like the, uh, the Jewish Holocaust is being denied as a fact of history. You can take photographs of, of the crematoriums and the places where people were, were killed with cyanide. They, they still exist. You can take photographs of them. A few years ago, the actual people, some of the people still survived. But now those people have died, those things that are being denied as, as actual facts of history by people who, for various reasons, don't like the people of Israel and don't, don't want there to be a holocaust. And I was saying the same thing about people like William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. These basic facts of history are being denied. And uh, 
the liars can get away with this because the bulk of the population don't read history anymore. So, so there's, no, there's no one to, as it were, fight back or argue back. And the most outrageous, uh, prop, we live in a, in a day of propaganda more than ever. And, uh, well, I could say much more about that, but I've said enough. But uh, Jesus is a fact of history. These things were not done in a corner, as Paul said to King Agrippa. You can investigate them as much as you like. There's nothing that you will find out that is against the Christian gospel. We are, we are the people who are not afraid of investigation. Everybody else can't be investigated. Investigate Islam, find out what it's like. Investigate Hinduism, investigate communism or evolution. See what it leads to, see where it comes from. Investigate. We are the only people who don't mind investigation. Everybody else, they've got things to hide. We have nothing to hide. All, all the, all the, the only truth that can come out is that God so loved the world he sent his son. That's, that's the truth that will come out if you investigate. We are not afraid of investigation. Everybody else is, but we're not. So Jesus is a fact of history. Jesus is central in every area. And then I was trying to convince you that we need to know more about the story of Jesus. And that's part of the same syndrome, that the story of Jesus is not very much well known. Well, those are the things I was trying to say to you last night. But now I want to move on a bit and look at particular things. And um, I have a number of topics in my head that, uh, all being well, I might be able to share with you. Jesus as a, a man with a message. Jesus, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, a man who was a man of prayer. Jesus, who did amazing miracles, some of these topics we ought to think about. So I want us to begin then with something that happened at the beginning of Jesus' story. Of course, it's a major theme. We would be here for years if we were to deal with it properly. If you just went through the Gospels, taking each incident in the life of Jesus, you would have to have about 200 meetings. It's a very uh, rich story. But uh, all I can do is pick out a few little things. But uh, the thing that interests me at the moment is what had to happen before Jesus got going? Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was about 30. He did no miracle before he was 30. And incidentally, that's one of the differences between the true Gospels and the false Gospels. If you read these Gnostic Gospels of the second century, they're full of the miraculous even in the story of the boy Jesus. Even the boy Jesus is a kind of a wonder worker. Uh, that's not historical. That's a kind of second century invention. Actually, Jesus did no miracle until he was baptized with the Spirit. The first miracle he ever did was in Cana of Galilee, and so on. So he began when he was 30. Somebody asked me last night, why, why did it take so long? Why did Jesus begin at 30? And I answered that I suppose it's because he had to have an ordinary life before he had his life of ministry. If he'd begun being a miracle worker and doing awful things when he was a little boy of 8, 9, 10, as, he, as, as in the false Gospels, it would have meant he had no ordinary life. He didn't grow up as a teenager, didn't go to school, didn't, didn't have to struggle with his parents and uh, go through all the things that ordinary people go through. No, Jesus was tempted like us in all points, except he didn't sin, which means he had to have a kind of ordinary life before his ministry began. And so he just lived an ordinary life. He was not baptized with the Spirit in the way he was later for 30 years, and he knew what it was like to be a teenager, he knew what it was like to be a carpenter, he knew what it was like to grow up in a little Galilean village which was despised and up in, up in the remote north, can anything good come out of Galilee, they said. He knew all about that. He went through an ordinary life, and it was the purpose of God that he should do that. 
And uh, we all have to be ordinary people as well as super saints, you know. Even Jesus had to go through an ordinary life in that way. But then his ministry began. But uh, certain things had to happen before it got moving. There was uh, three or four things. There was the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist started six months before Jesus did. And uh, before Jesus' ministry got going, there was John the Baptist who went around saying, uh, telling people to get ready for the coming of the Lord, make, make, clear, make a plain in the desert, a highway for our God. And then he began to tell about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, look at that guy over there, behold, the Lamb of God, he's the one who will take away the sins of the world. And he introduced the people to the, to the Saviour. He said, I must, I must decrease, my ministry is finished now, I must decrease, he must increase. He's about to be the one who takes over the ministry of God to Israel. So there was this preliminary ministry of John the Baptist. And then Jesus had to be baptized with the Spirit. He didn't do anything until he was baptized with the Spirit. And he had to be tempted. He went away for six weeks in the wilderness and uh, was tempted by Satan. So, so there, there were these preliminaries before the ministry of Jesus got going. And I want us to think about at least one of them this morning. So let me read to you, uh, the shortest version of this story is in Mark's Gospel. Let me read to you a few verses from Mark chapter 1. We read that Jesus came in the beginning of the Gospel was as it is written in Isaiah, Mark chapter 1 verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger, John, before your face. And John appeared, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the company, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes someone who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it was in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the next few verses go on to speak of the temptation. So, one of the first things that Jesus did is he identified with the ministry of John the Baptist. And as I was hinting a little bit uh, last night, it was a very extraordinary thing to do. Imagine that you were about to set up a ministry. Where would you do it? And uh, who would you used, as it were, get you going? Who would you identify with? Well, I suppose if you were in ancient Israel, you'd want to start in Jerusalem. You'd want to sort of have meetings in the temple. You'd want to hope you get Caiaphas doing a bit of a advertising for you. And you'd find the big guys in Jerusalem, and you would, uh, you'd set up your ministry, and you'd find some big stadium in Jerusalem or something, and you'd launch your ministry. <laughs> but Jesus didn't do anything like that. I mean, there was this guy, John the Baptist. I mean, look at him. He dresses with camel's hair. I mean, really, that was not very fashionable, even in ancient Israel. <laughs> he dresses in camel's hair. 
and he's got this leather belt and he's locusts and wild honey. I, I often think that they invited Jesus to a wedding. Remember, Jesus Jesus was not like John the Baptist. Jesus was very convivial, very friendly, and so he'd love to go and eat meals with people, and they invited him to a wedding. I often think, what would have happened if they'd invited John the Baptist to the wedding? And he turns up in his camel skin, and, his, and he says, I hope, I hope you're serving locusts today. I mean... John the Baptist, who wants to identify with this weirdo setting up his ministry in the deserts? It seems a, a lunatic thing to do, this, this uh, crazy, charismatic guy. You know, though he does no miracles. He, he didn't know miracles in the Bible. He just, he just preaches repentance. Jesus identifies with him. He goes out into this desert just outside Jerusalem where the River Jordan is, and a very desert, lonely, desolate place. And he goes and he identifies with this preacher out in the bush somewhere preaching a baptism with repentance. He identifies with John the Baptist and he actually asks John to baptize him. And you remember from Mark's, Matthew's Gospel that John protests. John says, well, you know, this baptism is about repentance. You, you, don't, you, know, you don't need to repent. Why, why should, I, should I be baptizing you? You ought to be baptizing me. Jesus says, no, let's, let's fulfill all righteousness. This, this is what is righteous. I'm coming in the place of sinners. I'm, I'm, I'm identifying with sinners. I'm acting as if I'm a sinner because I'm about to bear the sins of the world. So I'm identifying with them. And he insists that John should baptize him. But uh, the great question I want to ask then this morning is, there's many things we could look at, and I'm not concerned with every detail. I'm just concerned with the... Um, its relevance and significance for the life of Jesus. But uh, the great question we should ask then is, is why did Jesus do that? And what, what is the point of this preliminary ministry before Jesus' ministry gets going? What's the point of this kind of preparation for Jesus in the ministry of John the Baptist? Well, I think the answer is that um, it is necessary that before the ministry of Jesus even starts, it should become clear what it's going to be all about. Um, John the Baptist has a particular function, I believe, in, in, this, in this connection. His job is to make it clear what is the nature of the salvation that's coming. He, he's the one who, as it were, challenges everything that, that's going on in Israel. And... Uh, as it were, he, as it were, drags them back to the Old Testament. Remember that he's an Old Testament prophet. He may be in the New Testament, but he's really the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he is, as it were, summarizing the entire message of all of the prophets of Israel, dragging them back to that message. There hasn't, there hasn't been a great prophet for about three or four hundred years, but uh, he's picking up from Malachi, and these verses are quoted from Malachi. He's picking up from Malachi, the last of the prophets, and he's, as it were, dragging Israel back to listen once again to the, to the message of the prophets that stopped about 400 years previously. Why is he doing that? Well, the reason why he's doing it is surely that, um, that the people of Israel have forgotten what the coming of the Messiah is all about. They have forgotten what is the message of salvation. And so John's job is, as it were, to drag them back and get them to listen once again to the prophetic message. Now, what, what, what's... Let, let me put it like this. What is it that the average Jew of the first century AD think is involved in the coming of the Messiah? 
Well, the average, the average view in the first century is that this Messiah is going to be a kind of great soldier. He's, been, he's going to be another Judas Maccabeus. You, you know about Judas Maccabeus in the second century BC? There was great persecution by the, by the Greeks who tried to destroy Judaism. And one particular family, the, Mac- the Maccabees, or sometimes called the Hasmoneans, the Maccabee family revolted, and one particular member of that family, Judas Maccabeus, uh, defied the, the Greek Empire, and, and a, a kind of revolution began, and uh, the, a, fr- a kind of freedom-fighting movement began in Israel. And they, they overthrew the power of the Greeks, and they set up Judaism, they, they, they killed various people trying to force them to, to, to revert to, to paganism, and uh, they re-established Israeli people ruling Israel. The priests began to become the rulers of Israel, and uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans, later on the Romans, as it were, abandoned trying to uh, rule Israel. So the Maccabean revolt of the second century BC was a great kind of freedom-fighting movement, kind of a anti-colonial fi- fight back against the, the colonizers, the Greeks, and the Hellenistic culture. And they re-established Israel as a, as a kind of a fairly independent nation, not totally, but a fairly independent nation. And they were given a lot of freedom. And when the Romans came along, about 50 BC, they ruled over Israel. But the, the Jews had a lot of freedom. And that freedom was established by Judas Maccabeus. And uh, Caiaphas was still there. He was still ruling the nation in many ways. So Israel had much more freedom than most Roman colonies did. It was because of this mighty soldier, Judas Maccabeus. And so the average person in Israel is, is looking for a Messiah. And the Messiah is going to be a kind of soldier. He's going to be a kind of super Judas Maccabeus. He's going to be a, a revolutionary. And uh, he's going to get, raise an army and set up the kingdom and release Israel from its colonial domination. That, that is what everybody is expecting, a political, military Deliverer who will rescue Israel from Roman domination and exalt the nation in the eyes of the world. That's what they're expecting and wanting. When they say, Lord, send your Messiah, that's what they're praying for. A military conqueror and deliverer. That's one reason why Jesus never calls himself the Messiah. Have you ever noticed Jesus never says, I'm the Messiah? Well, he did say it once. He said it to the woman of Samaria. But the reason why he can say it to her is because she's not in Judea. She's in Samaria. In Samaria, when she says, well, we know the Messiah's coming, he can say, well, I'm the one. I am he. In Samaria, he can say that. In Judea, he can't. In, in Judea, it would mean I'm, I'm the revolutionary guy who's going to set up an army. He can't say that. It would be misunderstood. In Samaria, he can say it. The only time he ever calls himself the Messiah. Although if somebody else calls him the Messiah, he will not deny it. If someone says, well, you're the son of David, he won't say, well, no, I'm not. Because he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. So he won't deny it when somebody else calls him the Messiah, but he never calls himself the Messiah, because if he does, he's claiming to be a soldier and a kind of military conqueror. So the problem is, is that the whole of uh, Israel have a kind of wrong conception of what salvation is and of what the Savior is coming to do. And that's the point of John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes, in no way is he any kind of soldier. In no way is he some political figure in Jerusalem. In no way is he from some upper-class member of the hierarchy in the temple. He is just a total non-entity. He uh, comes from a poor family, a priestly family, and uh, no one very special. And he, he dresses like Elijah. That, that is the, the point of the, the leather 
clothes and so on. He's dressing like Elijah. This is the way Elijah dressed in the Old Testament. And you remember what Elijah did? Elijah lived at a time when, when Baalism, the worship of Baal, the false gods, had become the kind of state religion. And uh, the entire country of northern Israel were worshipping Baal. And God sends Elijah. And Elijah's got a certain kind of temperament. He's a, he's a, a tough guy. He's a guy who can stand alone. And he thought he was alone. You remember when he got a bit depressed, he said, well, look, I'm the only one. I'm, you know, they've, they've killed your prophets and I'm the only one. God said to him, actually, Elijah, there's, there's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. You're not the only one at all. There's thousands out there who, who, who believe in me. But you see, they were an underground movement. Elijah didn't even know about them. He said, I'm the only one. They've killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left. But Elijah was the, was the kind of person who didn't mind being the only one left. He would stand. If, no, if nobody else stood with him, he still stood anyway. If he was the only one preaching the gospel, he, 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 he didn't bother him. If all the others had been killed, they could kill him too, but he was not going to compromise. And if there was nobody supporting him, it made no difference. He was ready to stand alone. That's a certain kind of guy. Not everybody's like that. But Elijah was. And John the Baptist is the same. He's, he's totally standing against the entire consensus of first century Judah. If, if nobody else knows what the gospel is, Elijah does. And, if, and John the Baptist does. If nobody else is looking for a spiritual saviour, John the Baptist is. And he goes into the wilderness and he's only got one message. His only message is, repent, the kingdom of God is coming. There's going to come somebody who's the Lamb of God who will take away your sins. His message is to correct the false view of salvation to get rid of this military political idea and make it quite clear to everybody that the one who is coming is not going to be a politician or a soldier or some member of the hierarchy in Jerusalem. He is going to come as the Lamb of God who will die for the sins of the world and the way to get ready for him is to admit you're a sinner, start repenting and get ready for this salvation that's coming. His job is to make it clear the, the nature of the salvation that is coming. And uh, that had, in the purpose and plans of God, that had to happen. We might ask in a moment why Jesus couldn't do that himself, why, why it had to be John the Baptist. We'll come to that. But um, John the Baptist's ministry is to make it clear that the Saviour who is coming is a spiritual Saviour, that his, his task is not to get rid of Romans, his task is to atone for sin. His task is to go to the cross. His task is to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the way to get ready for him is, is to confess that you need an atonement for your sins, to start repenting now and get ready for this one who will baptize you and pour the Holy Spirit upon you and make you a child of God. That's the function of the ministry of John the Baptist. But uh, what I want to do this morning is not just so much to expound all this history, what I want to do this morning is more to try to apply that message to ourselves. Because you see, here, here's the problem. That every generation tends to forget what the gospel is. Every generation tends to forget 
what the gospel is. It happened in the Old Testament. It happened with the early church. It happens everywhere. There's one, if there's one thing the devil hates, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's one thing the devil wants you to forget, it is the gospel. If there's one thing the devil wants to do, it's to get you away from the message of scripture and the gospel message of salvation. And in generation after generation after generation, he, he will get you and me and everybody else, if he possibly can, to, to, to be, as it were, misrepresented presenting the gospel and going after something else thinking that it is the gospel. And it's happened in generation after generation throughout the entire course of salvation history. It happened in the Old Testament as much as in the New Testament. It happens everywhere. But generation after generation forget what the gospel is. And so every generation needs what I would call an Elijah ministry. Every generation needs someone somewhere who will drag the church of Jesus Christ back to the gospel and say, this is the gospel and that's not. And sometimes he has to stand alone. Remember what they said to Athanasius, the great Athanasius in the third century who, who lived in a day where everybody was, was really not believing that Jesus was God. And Arius, the Arianism, who said that Jesus was just some created angel. And uh, Athanasius defied him and stood up. He was a young guy. He was in his 20s. He was an assistant to the bishop. He was just a young guy when he began. And he could see that Jesus, was, if nobody else could see that Jesus was God, Athanasius could. And he did not care what anybody else said. He stood and fought. They exiled him from the Roman Empire about five times because he wouldn't cooperate with, with Caesar, with, with the Caesars. And uh, then he sneaks back again and he went on for his whole life. And one day they said to him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. The whole world is against you. And Athanasius replied, if the world is against Athanasius, then Athanasius is against the world. <laughs> he didn't care what the world, what the world was saying. He was ready to stand alone if need be. And every generation needs a kind of, needs a kind of Athanasius figure or a John the Baptist figure or an Elijah figure. In Elijah's day, everybody was worshipping the Baals. You, you could have a meeting of prophets and 200 of them would be prophets of Baal and poor Elijah would be on his own. He'd be the only one. And uh, remember what Elijah he said, he, well, let's, let's have a contest. Let, let, let's, you, you, you start worshipping your gods and I'll worship mine and we'll pray and we'll see what happens. And the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And uh, remember what happened. I remember preaching, I preached on it once here, I remember. And uh, you remember what happened before he started calling for the fire to fall? He poured water everywhere. He said, there's no, there's no deception here. I'm not, I'm not secretly got some underground fire. He drenches the whole thing with water so that it's quite clear he's not manipulating. And then they pray. And as, as Elijah pray, then the people pray. And they do all sorts of things and their gods don't answer. And he says, well, what's happened? Is he gets sarcastic. You see, these, these Elijahs, they're not, they're not politically correct. He gets sarcastic. You know, you're, I think your God's fallen asleep. We may have to shout a bit more. You better, you better wake him up. He's very sarcastic about it. These Elijahs, they're not polite and tactful. And, uh, and finally, finally he says, oh, and he called, the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And the fire falls. That's Elijah. There's not many of them around. You ought to be glad about that. You don't need too many of them. But uh, these Elijah characters... You need them. You need a few people who can see clearly, stand alone. If the whole world is against, is against them, it makes no difference. Luther was like it. They said to Luther, are you the first one ever to discover justification by faith? Didn't bother Luther. If he was the only one, it was all right. Actually, there were others who knew about those things, but he didn't even know about them. He was ready to stand alone, if need be. And, uh, and he was going to the great big trial at Worms in 1521, 
They said to him, where will you go if you're condemned by the Pope and your life is in danger? He said, under heaven, somewhere under heaven. He didn't care where he he went, he was not going to yield. Remember what he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I don't care what you say, here I stand. Remember, maybe if you read your history books, the great events of 1521. But uh, these Elijah figures, we need them, and they changed the whole of history. People like Luther, they changed the whole of history. Elijah changed the entire history of Israel. Those, those prophets of Baal were put to flight, they were executed, they were got rid of. He turns the entire history of northern Israel around. One man turns the entire history of, of northern Israel around. And Luther did the same in Germany. He turns the entire course of, of European history around. One man standing on one verse of scripture, Romans 1.17. One man with one verse of scripture can turn the the entire course of history around. And, um, and John the Baptist comes dressing like Elijah. He's going to stand against the establishment. He's going to make it clear that we're not expecting some kind of political uh, saviour. This is about sin and repentance and, and making a community. He invents baptism. I think, I think John the Baptist invented baptism. I don't know whether it's God's idea or John's idea, but he's the first one to do it. He invents baptism. I want you to drown yourself in, the, in, in this water and get up as a new person, and there's a new community of people who are getting ready for the coming of the Savior. He marks out a new community getting ready for Jesus, and so on. But as I say, my, my concern is not so much to um, deal with history as to apply it. Where, where are we today in this connection? Well, I would suggest to you that if you... Um, Look at the course of history, you'll see that every generation makes the same mistake. In the days of Jesus, it was a a political, nationalistic, military messiah that they were expecting, all expecting some great soldier. And John and Jesus have to deal with this and stand against it. But then, of course, Jesus came and the day of Pentecost comes and he pours out the Holy Spirit and for a generation, for almost a century, the Christian church is well established as a spiritual meeting. The Holy Spirit is poured out, a kind of revival takes place. The day of Pentecost is really a revival coming upon Israel. Remember, everyone was Jewish on the, on the day of Pentecost and Gentiles came in later. It's really a revival, the restoration of Israel, the Spirit being poured out on the, on the elect remnant of Israel. If the small number, 120, but they're all Jews, it's the Spirit being poured out upon the tiny, true, authentic Israel. And then Gentiles are added into it, and the church begins to grow. The church is Israel. We Jews are, we Gentiles are grafted into the Israel of God. And so the church grows, and for a century it, it does well. There are heretics and false teachers and all sorts of mistakes being made. The Galatians want to go back to the law. The Colossians uh, have weird views of Jesus. And Thessalonians think the second coming will be tomorrow morning. And they've all, they've all got to these, all these mistakes are taking place, but still the life of God is there. But as you keep on reading the New Testament, you find, if you, if you read your history, you'll find that immediately the New Testament era is open that the church wanders. I mean, scarcely is the ink dry on the last page of the New Testament before someone's wandering off all over the place. And the church very speedily, immediately, in the the early second century, the church very immediately goes into sacramentalism. They they start having weird views of water and baptism and and what became the mass and the the bread being turned into the body of Jesus. And they they go into sacramentalism uh, in, in in the second century. 
Many years ago, let me tell you a little story. Many, many years ago, since some of you are here from South Africa, I'll tell you the story. Many years ago, I was doing uh, some work in UNISA, the University of South Africa, and I got on, I got, got on quite well with, with a man in the faculty there who, who was a Roman Catholic. He was a very strong, uh, committed Roman Catholic in the, in the uh, staff, uh, the teaching staff of UNISA, University of South Africa. And uh, a day came when this man asked if I would be the respondent to a paper that he was reading. He was reading a paper on the history of the Lord's Supper. And uh, we were quite sort of friendly with each other, and uh, I was always trying to convert him to Jesus, and he was always trying to convert me to Catholicism, and neither, neither one of us succeeded. But uh, we were quite close in, in, a, in a way. And so he, he was reading this, this paper at an international conference in, in Pretoria, and his paper was on the history of the Mass, the history of the Lord's Supper. And he asked me if I would respond to it. And after the paper was read, you, you had to stand up and sort of say, yeah, that was a good paper, and get the discussion going, and for ten minutes, so respond to the paper that had been given. He asked me if I would do it. And I said, yes. And so he read this paper on the history of the Mass, and it was a brilliant paper. It was very, very well done, showing that uh, from the earliest days, the... Uh, the Christian church had uh, worshipped the body in, in the bread and so on, and the mass was very, very early. And he gave this this tremendous uh, paper on the history of the doctrine of mass of the mass in the Roman Catholic Church, and said it was all there from the beginning. And this is really we should, we should all be Roman Catholics and so on. And he gave his paper for an hour or so, and then they handed it over to me, and I, I had to respond to it. So I stood up and I said, "Well, you know, Doctor So and So is a." given us a very brilliant paper, and everything he says is right. Tremendous, tremendous paper. He gave a great paper. I really enjoyed it. Except that he began in the second century. He should have began in the first century. He should have began with the New Testament and said, what's the New Testament teaching concerning the Lord's Supper? And what happened between the first, country, the first century and the second century? Because everything he said began in the second century. Yeah, I agree. The Mass was there in the second century. In the second century, they're talking about the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice, but not in the New Testament. So something happened between the New Testament and the second century. So it's fine paper, except it didn't go back early enough. If you'd gone back a few early days in the New Testament, he would have found a great change came. And so I gave my... 10 minutes, reply to my favorite professor, hoping he wouldn't slaughter me for having betrayed him. But, um, but they didn't like it. The conference did not like it. They stood up and they said, well, you're just a typical Baptist, you, you Bible-believing evangelicals. You know, that's the kind of thing that you would say. And the whole conference, as it were, attacked me for, for being a sort of Bible-thumping Baptist and I was a pastor of a Baptist church. So they said, well, you, you Baptists, you know, that's the sort of thing you would say. And they, the whole conference turned upon me. But... Just as they were really launching their attack on me, the professor, the, the senior professor of the faculty stood up. He stood up and he said, no, no, Eaton is right. You'll never get anywhere until you investigate what happened in the early second century. And, and, and although the whole conference was against me, my, the, the head of the department supported me, and, I, and in the end I did okay. But, uh, <laughs> but you see... Adriel Koenig stood up and said, no, no, you, this, is, this is right. You will never understand the history of the church unless you realize what happened at the beginning of the second century. Every single thing in Catholicism has got early origins, but not in the New Testament. 
what happens is the very moment the ink is dry, they start going into calling this a mass and the water is magic and, and the, water, the water is sort of a kind of a magical thing you dipped into it and the water makes you regenerate and so on. It all begins in the second century. Immediately the church goes, goes astray. Within, within weeks almost of the last apostle dying, there are people going into sacramentalism. And Tertullian, who I quoted last night, Tertullian wrote the first book ever to be written on baptism. And he said, I'm quoting him, he said, Christians are little fishes born in water. Christians are little fishes born in water. And the idea is you come to faith, but although you've not you've come to faith, you're not saved. And you step into the water, and the water regenerates you, and you're like a little fish born in water. When you come out, you're born again. It is the water that does it. You, even though you've got faith before you step into the water, that faith does not save you. It is the water that does it. And Christians are little fishes born in water. That's swept into the church in, in the second century. And the biggest problem of the, ch- of, of the church as it got going in the second and the third and the fourth century on into medieval Catholicism was this sacramentalism where, where you just had to be dipped in water. That's the thing that saved you. And, and you, you literally and physically ate the body of Jesus. It was, it was the sacrifice of the cross being repeated. And slowly the Catholic doctrine of the Mass comes in. It's not, it's not really there, it's not there very much in the early days. But it grows and it grows and it grows. And for a thousand years the church becomes sacramentalist and your salvation is in the handle of the priests and, and you, you, you you have to go to the Mass all the time, and you're born again by being dipped in water. And so if, if, if the water does it, you might as well do it when you're a baby. After all, if it's the water that does it, well, it doesn't matter about you, even your baby can be dipped in water, and even the baby will get born again. And infant baptism comes in, and all the rest of it. It all comes in because the church forgets its message. And if you ask the question, why did the church move that way, I think the answer is very easy. The answer, the answer is, is that all the religions of the ancient world were full of water ceremonies. And the idea was there in Roman religion and Greek religion. All, all the water was there in, in the pagan religions. And the water was a kind of magical thing in the pagan religions. And so when the Christians came along, what they tended to say was this. They tended to say, our water is stronger than your water. If you get baptized, if you get baptized by our water, it will get you born again. But your water won't work. They, that, was the, that was a mistake. What they should have said is, they should have said, our saviour is stronger than your water. That's what they should have said. But you see, the trouble is, when you're arguing with somebody, the great danger always is, is that you, because you're arguing with somebody, you're trying to be nice to them, and you, you accept their presuppositions. You really sort of accept their starting points. If you accept their starting points, you'll end up with their conclusions. When you're controverting with somebody, don't, don't begin with what they believe. Start all over again. Begin with nowhere and expound the truth from nothing, with no basis. Just say, God says, and plunge in with your message. Don't begin with their presuppositions. If you begin with their presuppositions, you'll end up with their conclusions. You probably don't know what I'm talking about, but it's all right. It's true. I know, be careful when you're arguing with people, because often people will convince you more than you convince them, because you, because you sort of accept their starting point. And if you accept someone's starting point, you'll end up with their conclusions. Now, when you're debating with people, you, you, you've got to get to your own starting point. Don't begin with their starting begin with your starting point. Our starting point is Jesus is the saviour, not, not we're looking for the right water. You see, you're accepting their starting points and just trying to find the better water. No, that's a mistake. And so the whole church goes into sacramentalism, and it, la- it lasts a thousand years. It lasts till, till, till quite modern times. And for, for centuries, everybody is just singing salvations by water. And when, when, people, when the Baptist movement begins in the 16th, 17th century, 
they are setting themselves against a thousand years of tradition. That they, when the early Baptists began to say, no, water's not magic, and uh, you should be baptized when you believe, they are persecuted and hounded by, by the established churches, and, and the, their biggest persecutors are, are the medieval Catholic Christians. They are Christians, I'm not deny, denying their salvation, but, but they've corrupted the gospel. They've forgotten what the gospel is. And for, for, for centuries, the false gospel is there. Well, that's what happened in the church. But then the Reformation came along, Luther and Calvin, all these people, eventually the Protestants and the Puritans and the, and the Baptist movement, and, and people sought out the doctrine of salvation. And for another 50 years or so, all is well, and people are preaching the gospel. But then the same thing happened all over again. And the, the new thing that happened in the 18th, 19th century was that the message of the gospel is the kingdom. And uh, in the, in the, un, under the rise of the Enlightenment and the growth of Western civilization, the idea is, is well, the Christian faith is, is the kingdom. It's, uh, it's the brotherhood of man. It's that we're all brothers together. It is the universal fatherhood of God. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount, or just one or two verses from it. It's turning the other cheek and forgiving your enemies and being, being so nice to people. It, it is this morality and consensus, and it, it's, bringing, it's establishing, a, it's getting rid of war and abolishing apartheid and, and, and setting up sort of niceness and sweetness in the life and giving uh, liberality to, to women and, and slaves and, and so on. It, it is the growth of morality and the brotherhood of man and uh, the fatherhood of God. Every, we're all God's children, and, uh, and uh, we, God is a God of love. And you mustn't talk about atonement and blood and all these things that you Christians talk about, and, uh, and the wrath of God. No, no, God is such a God of love, and he's bringing in his kingdom, and we're going to abolish war. Well, yeah, that, we did have that war, but that's the war to end all wars. We're never going to do it again. And, uh, well, there's another one. Yeah, yeah, that shouldn't have come along. No, we've won the war. Now we're going to win the peace. Uh, and it's all this kind of optimism and how, how nice, uh, how nice uh, we all are and the kingdom of God is coming. That kind of thing, it lasts for hundred, hundreds of years. It's still around. Have you been, have you been watching Ken Livingston and his, and his speeches recently? You can see him on, on uh, YouTube. We're going to make uh, London a nice, sweet place for Muslims. This is going to be the land of tolerance, and uh, all is going to be well. All you people, you nice, sweet people, really, uh, under, under, your, under the bottom of your souls, you're really quite nice people. We're going to tolerate you, and we're going to make uh, London a kind of mecca for, 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 for Muslims. You still, it's the same message, really, that all is sweet and lightness. We're all very good people at the bottom of our souls, and uh, all is well, and we'll bring in tolerance and, and prosperity, and we'll abolish war, and we'll get rid of racism. It's the old, old message of optimism about man. You would think that the First World War would have got rid of that. You not know that the 20th century was meant to be the great century. The end of the 19th century, they were looking forward to the 20th century. This is the day when paradise is going to come. This is the day when there's going to be worldwide peace and there's going to be the League of Nations and this and that. This is going to be the greatest century, they said at the end of the 19th. The churches were full. You can go around Britain today and you see, you see these huge uh, Methodist central halls. If they've not been turned into a mosque, you can see these huge uh, Methodist central halls. They've never been filled in their life. There's never been a time and they've ever been used. 
I did, why did people build these huge churches? Westminster Chapel with its 3,000, the top gallery has never been used ever in its entire history in, in, by the regular church, uh, a special meeting, but uh, not for the regular meetings. Why, why are these huge churches being built in Britain? Well, if you look at their dates, it's all about 1850-something. They, they all thought that paradise was coming, uh, the, world, the world was going to grow and grow, the churches were going to be bursting to the scenes. We need these big buildings with, that will hold thousands, and uh, paradise is coming, utopia is coming, war is going to be abolished, and evolution is going to evolve even more and more, and we're going to be the greatest specimen of humanity ever known in the history of the world. And it all went on until about 1914. And when 1914 came, the whole of Western optimism was so shattered, they were not expecting that. And millions, as you, as you know, millions and millions were killed. One civil, one, one, the most, the most in, intellectual, intelligent nations in the world, Britain, Germany, these highly intelligent, highly educated nations with their universities and their, and their expertise and their science, they slaughter each other in the millions. This so-called utopia never came. When it was all over, well, that was the war to end all wars, they, they used to say. It didn't last very long. And the world is still in much the same way. Each, each generation starts fighting war in a way that's different from the way they fought the last war. You get a new kind of war comes along. People are still trying to live as though they're living in the old world. It's still happening. Well, I'm saying it's all going back to a false gospel. It's all going back to a kind of um, corruption of what the Christian gospel really is. And it, it doesn't work, and it just declines, and People are leaving those old churches. Still, if there's any left, people are leaving those churches in their thousands. I should think there's scarcely anybody left these days. And anything, anything's really getting anywhere in the Christian church these days. They're all new movements, all movements less than 20 years old. The, 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 the churches of Europe that are getting anywhere are all less than 20 years old. 20 years ago, you hardly knew where to go to church. I used to come back from Zambia in, 19, in the 1970s. I never knew whether there was anywhere I could go to church. And I remember 1974, my, my father had a heart attack and I flew back to, to England very hurriedly because my dad had a heart attack and I was on my own without my family. And I began visiting all the churches. I never had a more depressing couple of weeks in my life. The churches of Britain in the 1970s, I mean, it wouldn't be worth going to church. That's all changed. But, but, and there's many, many new churches around these days. But um, they're all new. They're not the old churches. Those old optimistic churches have all died. And certain theological colleges that I can remember from the 1960s, they don't exist today. There were places, there were, there were training, Christian training colleges around in the 1960s that I knew about. If I quoted them today, you'd never have heard of them in your life. They no longer exist. They died. They just died. And the only ones that continued were those that were preaching the gospel. It all went on until quite recently, and, and slowly that's kind of ending. Well then, the next question is, what about today? Are we, are we in the same position today? I think we are. It's not sacramentalism anymore. That, that's largely gone and defeated. The, the uh, go-getting Christians don't believe in sacramentalism anymore. I think this idea of the brotherhood of man and all being para, para, a bit paradisical and the whole world's going to be one at any moment, that's all gone. What, what is it now, in our, in our present situation, what, what is it that requires a John the Baptist today? Well, surely the answer is 
this, the current uh, the current bail, the current false gospel is surely that the very essence of the Christian gospel is that God is going to be, how can I put it, I, I like to put it like this, it's a bit of an African way of putting it, but, but God wants to be our sugar daddy, as we would say in Africa. You know, when you're sick, he wants to heal you, he wants your business to go well, he wants you to prosper, and uh, he's there as your friend, and all's going to be well with you, and uh, if you come from one of the developing countries, most Christians are in the developing countries, the Christians are not in the Western world anymore, they're in Indonesia and Africa and so on. If you really want to develop life and, uh, and uh, fulfill your, the goals of your life, you, you trust in God, he'll be with you, you'll, 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 be, you'll be the head and not the tail, as, as uh, one of the favorite verses of the modern Christian world, and, and God's going to be, as you were, blessing you. There's no suffering. If you're not God's will, you should suffer. You don't know, like that in the Christian gospel. God's going to bless you and prosper you. Your children are going to go to uh, good schools, and if you live in Africa, you can get a visa to America next week. All's going to be well with you. And uh, that, that, this, is, this God's on your side. There's a book. There's a book out. I brought, I brought a copy to show it to you. Have you uh, are you are you familiar with this book, Philip Jenkins? The Next Christendom. The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins, Oxford University Press, highly highly scholarly man, published by Oxford University. The Next Christendom. He wrote the first edition of that book ten years ago. He came out in the same week as 9/11, the, the famous 9/11. Now it's come come out in the second edition. Philip Jenkins thesis is, and he's right, I'm sure he's right, his thesis is, the old Christendom is gone. This old, this old Christianity that, that ran from the Reformation up to about now, it's finished, it's gone forever. This old Christendom no longer exists, it's collapsing, it's being invaded by Islam, it's dying a thousand deaths, it's finished. Ah, but it's not the end of the story because there's a new Christendom arising. And it's true, there's, there's a new Christendom arising. And all over the world, the churches are growing in their thousands, 16,000 per day professed conversion in Africa. There are, there are parts of the world where, the, where Christians are multiplying rapidly and, and certain countries that used to be Catholic countries, I'm thinking of South America, certain countries used to be Catholic countries, now, now they're more or less Pentecostal countries. Philippines and so on, even the Catholics are becoming Pentecostals. You get, you get healing crusades and, and speaking in tongues crusades inside the Catholic Church. The whole of the world is becoming Pentecostalized and uh, there's a new Christendom coming. It's true, it's true. Go just travel a little bit, you'll see what I mean. But his thesis is that the, the next Christendom is a different, a different kind of criticism. It is full of, of, uh, of the miraculous, it's full of healings and exorcisms and prosperity and uh, visions and, and angels visiting you and raptures into heaven. It, it's, a, it's a hyper, hyper, hyper charismatic Christianity where God is on your side, he's your sugar daddy, and he'll take care of you, all will be well, you'll never suffer. That is the new Christendom. That's Philip Jenkins' uh, contention. I was saying it before I knew about Philip Jenkins. But you know, it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not that God is your sugar daddy. The gospel begins with sin. These, these modern movements, they don't even mention sin. The gospel begins with sin. The gospel says that your biggest problem is the John Baptist, John the Baptist again. He, John the Baptist comes in and says, your problem is not Rome. Your problem is, is not these armies of Romans domineering over your country. That's not your problem. You wouldn't even have those Romans there if you hadn't sinned. God would not have let your land ever be invaded by the Romans if you hadn't wandered into idolatry. Your problem, that's just the symptom. That's just the result. The cause is, is, not, is not Roman imperialism. The cause is sin. 
And if you want a saviour, the saviour is coming to, to die, for, to deal with sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is sin that he's coming to deal with. He'll take away the sins of the world. Not that behold the Lamb of God who'll take away the Romans, but behold the Lamb of God who'll take away the sins of the world. He's coming to deal with sin universally, every sin anywhere, to take it away. I'll try to preach upon that verse on Sunday morning, I think, if you're here on Sunday morning. But... Um, that's the message of John the Baptist. The, the very central message of the gospel is about sin. And uh, these are the things that people enjoy so much about the Christian gospel, the, the, the promise of healing and so on, and God caring for us. It, it's, it's true, it's there. God does take on the whole of our life. He doesn't just forgive us our sins. He takes, our whole, he takes the whole of us on into his care. So there's some truth in what they say. But it's not first. It's seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things that you might be worried about, they'll all be taken care of for you. But uh, that's not the central gospel. The central gospel is seek ye first the kingdom of God, which doesn't mean just, just uh, the brotherhood of man. It, it means God acting as king in your life. Seek God to be the king in your life and his righteousness and all these things will be added to that's the gospel. But, but actually, if you preach that gospel, you will be a lonely figure. I remember I was preaching once in Nairobi City Hall. And the lady came to see me afterwards and she made this comment. She said, Pastor, that's the kind of message you would not hear on TV. <laughs> and I, I knew exactly what she meant. She's right. I mean, you switch on your God channel or whatever it is. You're not going to hear about sin and righteousness and forgiveness and judgment and uh, Jesus dying upon the cross for your sins. You're, you're going to say, switch, you know, send your check here. Here's the account flashing. It'll be flashing on the screen. Send your money here and uh, I'll pray for you. Touch your TV and we'll, you'll get healed. I mean, that's what you're going to get over, over the God channel, isn't it? <laughs> No, no, every generation tends to forget the gospel. They went, to, they went to the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and they went after Baals and Elijah had to stand against the whole lot. And John the Baptist day, the only thing they bothered about was Roman imperialism. And Jesus comes, he is the Messiah, but he can't say so because if he says so just like that, they'll misunderstand. It, it needs someone to clarify the message. As soon as the ink is dry on the New Testament, they start going into superstition and Rome and the Pope and, and centralized churches and bishops and liturgies and prayer books and, and then Constantine gets saved and they change all into a kind of state church. The, bigger, the biggest enemy of the Christian gospel is to have a state church where you're just born a Christian just by, be, just by being born in that country and you get sprinkled and that's it. You, this child is now regenerate as the Anglican prayer book puts it. It all begins with, with those early wanderings from the face and it, it took a thousand years to cure it. And it was the prosperity, the brotherhood of man and, and, uh, and the abolition of war and social justice. It didn't bring any social justice. They never did abolish war. The thing doesn't work. Today it's easy prosperity and super hyper healing and God being your sugar daddy, as we would say in Africa. The question you might want to ask is, why did it have to be John the Baptist? Why couldn't Jesus have done that? Why couldn't Jesus have been the one who came and, and, and made it clear? Why did he need somebody else to prepare the way for him? Well, I don't really know. I'm not, I'm not quite sure to know the answer to that. But I have a few ideas about it. I would think it's because it's a different ministry. Not everybody is made to be a John the Baptist. You should be glad about that. But... Uh, 
it's a different kind of ministry. The, the, God raises up certain people who have a clear mind, who stand against the world if need be, who, believe, who take nothing upon, upon credit. They find out for themselves. And they stand alone and they discover what the gospel is. Nobody else agrees with them. It doesn't matter to them. And they proclaim the gospel. And I can't help feeling that the greatest need in Europe at the moment is an Elijah ministry. That what we need, here we are, the churches are declining. They are declining. No matter what happens and how many crusades we have and what bigger evangelistic movements we have, the facts of the matter is that the number of Christians in Europe is declining. And um, not, not that it's wholly a gloomy picture, I don't think it is. But, uh, but still, statistically, none of our endeavors to, as it were, win the nation for the last 50 years. None of them ever succeeded. These mighty crusades of Billy Graham back in the 50s and, and, the, and crusade evangelism, it all, fa- it all failed to touch the country. I'm not saying it did nothing. It didn't touch the country. And, uh, and our, our modern charismatic ways of being seeker-friendly and services that are nice and easy for everybody, and all these, all these things we've tried to do, they've all, they've all really failed. They're not touching the entire situation. I'm not saying that they, they do no good at all, but they're not touching the total situation. And our numbers are not in any way whatsoever growing. We're not, we're not so different from the days of, of Elijah and the Baals. That doesn't discourage me. I'm not bothered about that. History goes up and down. And... Uh, I don't know which is worse, to be in a country where everybody claims to be saved or in a country where nobody claims to be saved. They're as bad as each other. In Nairobi, everybody claims to be saved. I mean, really, you stand up, if you're in, if you're in a bank or a post office and you say, praise God, somebody somewhere will say amen. I mean, there's going to be some Christian around somewhere. The whole place is packed with Christians. You can fish on TV and they're telling you to believe in Jesus. I mean, it is so Christianized. 80% claim to be Christians. 16% are physically inside church every Sunday morning. It is such a Christianized place. I don't know which is worse, to be in a place where everybody claims to be Christian, but maybe they're not so Christian, or in a country where the gospel's being persecuted. I think I'd rather be in a situation where the gospel's being persecuted. When I go to India, I always prefer North India to South India. South India is sort of nominally Christian. Everybody you know, belongs to the South Indian church, and a lot of Christians are around. North India is totally pagan. I'd rather be in a place which is pag- totally pagan, because when someone gets saved, they are saved. It, it is a clear demarc- demarcation. I prefer East Germany to West Germany. You go to West Germany, everybody, everybody's got a Christian background. You go into East Germany, if you've been communist for 50 years, they, 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 they don't even know who Jesus is. But when someone gets saved, they are saved, and they, they transfer radically. I don't know which is worse, to be in a place where everybody, as it were, knows the gospel, in a place where nobody knows the gospel. I think I'd rather be in a place where nobody knows the gospel. Because then it's clear, the issues are clear. And when someone's saved, they're leaving the old world, and they're not just a, making a minor adjustment, they are totally leaving the old world and joining a new world. But surely the age in which we live in, in Europe is an age where we need to be John the Baptist, where we need to say, this is the gospel. This is a matter of history. It's about sin. And we, we're not bothered about being politically correct. We're not going to be nice to Muslims. We'll be friendly to Muslims, but we're not friendly. We're not gripped with the idea that it really doesn't matter what you believe. We're just nice to everybody anywhere. Maybe everybody's got a little bit of the truth anyway. No, no. Some things are wrong and some things are right. If you tell me that two and two make five, I will say, no, two and two make four. But you do have, a, you do have an entitlement to believe what you like. But two and two do make four. Uh, although I'll tolerate you, you are wrong. <laughs> do you see my point? There's a difference between toleration and, and having no opinions. 
It's to be tolerant people. We, we don't want anybody to come to faith because we're pressurizing them. They may pressurize us. We're not pressurizing them. They are to come to, to faith under the working of the Spirit in no other way. We're not bribing them to become Christians or saying you're in a state church, you'll get blessed if you join the hierarchy. We, we don't work that way. We want you to come to free, voluntary, easy faith under the preaching of the gospel. That's our message. First, we're to be clear about it. We're to, we're to be Elijah's. It'd say, the God who answers by fire, let him be God. We'll pray and see what God does. We'll preach and the message. We will not compromise. We will, stand, we will stand for the message of sin and salvation. And Jesus, the only Savior, there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby you, you must be saved if you put your faith in him. This is the only gospel that saves. That may bring us persecution. Indeed, I don't think we'll get anywhere until we get a bit of persecution. I mean, what, what makes churches grow is persecution. Don't you know that? In the early church, they used to say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Every time you kill a Christian, a church springs up there next week. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it, there are places in the world where this is happening today. The worst persecution in the world at the moment, I think, is in north, northeastern India, where Christians are literally killed for believing in Jesus. And Hindu, Hindu tyranny is so bad that they, they literally drive Christians to live in, 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 out in the bush or in, or in the forests. And they've got no homes and they, they get killed and murdered. But actually, the church is growing there. And I've seen, I've seen in India newspapers, if we are not careful, whole states are going to, turn to, are, are going to become Christian. And they're right. The more they persecute us, the more we grow. Because it makes the message clear. It makes the message clear. When you're willing to die for something, well, you must believe it if you're willing to die for it. It makes the message clear. We, we, we're not just looking for a sugar daddy. We're looking for a saviour. Our message is, is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the world is in the problems that it is and it, it never will be in any way be able to deal with those problems until it's reconciled with God. The world is, is not, has not yet tried trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our message. Our message is all these things are going to fail. They're, they're, they're guaranteed to fail. We, we know what's going to happen before they even began, begin. We know that this political party is not going to work. That's not, not going to work. A new constitution is not going to work. A new, a new government. None of these things are going to work because it is not what saves the world. Colonialism didn't save. Welfare states don't save. None of these things save. Social reform does not change a nation. The only thing that changes a nation is the number of people who are born again and come to faith in Jesus. If there's enough of them, it changes the whole country. This, this need of an Elijah ministry. It's, it's not for everybody. And Jesus did not come to do it. Jesus came not so much to be negative as to be the answer. And he came, and he wasn't like John the Baptist. You know what they said? They said, well, John the Baptist came, and they said, he's got, he's got a demon. And this guy who just goes around in, in these leather skins, he's got a demon. Jesus coming, eating and drinking. And they say, behold, he's a drunkard. One was accused of being a demon-possessed lunatic. Jesus, he was not accused of being so much demon-possessed, he got that as well. But they also accused him of, of being so nice, he's a drunkard. He spends all his time with these, with these immoral people, these, these, these ex-con men and these, these tax collectors, these girls from the streets. I mean, he spends all his time with them and he seems to get on with them. He's a kind of drunkard, mixing with all these sinners. How come this guy could be mixing with sinners so much? He was so friendly. He wasn't a John the Baptist. He was so friendly. You would invite him him to a wedding, you wouldn't invite John the Baptist to a wedding. They're different ministries. Not everybody's a John the Baptist. But we need some of them. And we need times where the church has a John the Baptist ministry. 
And I think we're in that time in Europe today, the, the, the hope for Britain, not just Britain, but France, Germany, Europe, Sweden, the hope for, for Europe is, is in revival. There's no other hope. Europe will decline unless, unless spiritual revival comes. No, no, no community can build itself up if it's neglecting God. It will decline if it's without God. Inevitably, irresistibly, it's doomed to failure. Only one thing that rescues a nation spiritually, and that's, and that's the gospel of Jesus. And that does involve this kind of plainness, this, this bluntness, this, this uh, refusal to compromise on what the gospel is, this insistence that whether we die for it or whether we live makes no difference, this is what the gospel is. If we stand alone, it makes no difference. We, we can be Elijah's, Lord, I'm the only one. Sometimes we might get depressed. Sometimes we might lie down under the juniper tree and say, well, you better take me to heaven. You know, I'm, I'm really, I've really failed. And Lord will say, no, it's all right, there's 7,000 out there. Don't be so discouraged. And the Lord may have to lift us up and encourage us. But in the history of the church, there are times when you need to be Elijah's. Even, even Jesus needed a John the Baptist. Even Jesus needed something that would get the message plain. And where someone, someone would say, look at him, he's the Lamb of God. Everything else has got to go down and decrease. He's the answer. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Even, even Jesus needed that. And if Jesus needed that, so do we. And, and that's surely the great need of, of Europe today. Other, other parts of the world are different. But here in Europe, we are needing honesty, forthrightness, bluntness, we need, to be, we need to be not politically correct, but more like Elijah, more like John the Baptist. You'll not have a Jesus until you are John the Baptist first. You'll not have, a, you'll not have a, the, the prophets of Baal swept away unless you are willing to say, the God who answers by fire, let him be God. You have to be there first. And God will hear you, God will answer you. That's surely the great need. Even Jesus needed something before the great day of blessing came. There had to be a John the Baptist. And I'm suggesting that we're in the same position before a great day of, of, of uh, revival comes. I'm looking forward to it. Muslim invasion does not bother me. I, I love the idea of Muslims coming to Britain. It's much cheaper than flying to Mecca, and, and, and you, don't, you don't need a work permit. This, this, that we've been trying for centuries to reach Islam, and we can't get there. Now they're turning up on our doorsteps. I mean, what an opportunity. This is a day for evangelism. I was, I was in Sweden a couple of years ago, and uh, I was chatting to an NFI church in, in, in the south of Sweden, in, uh, in uh, what's that place called, somewhere in the south. And I asked the pastor, who, who are the people around here that nobody, nobody wants? The, the, worst, the most unreachable people around. And he answered, well, you know, there's a lot of Muslims around here. And I said, why, why is that? He said, well, you know, these Muslims come to Sweden, they, they, put him, they put them all in that kind of camp, that kind of a place for incoming Muslims down, down, there, down the other end of town. I said to him, why don't you target them? Target them and try to see whether you can get them saved. One year later, I was back in South Sweden and we baptized nine Iranians in one, on one Sunday morning. Don't be, don't be too discouraged about Muslims rushing into Britain. It is the chance of a lifetime. The easiest place in the world to reach Muslims is London, Nairobi, and Cape Town, surely. That's the place where when a Muslim gets saved, no one can do anything about it. If some Muslim gets saved in, in Mecca or, or Jeddah or somewhere, he, he's not even going to survive. He has to run for his life. 
the easiest place in the world to reach Muslims is, is London and Britain. No, nobody can do anything if a, if a Muslim gets saved. As long as we are John the Baptists, as long as we are Elijahs, as long as we are people who know what our message is and will, will not compromise with it and insist that, that all other things are not the answer, the only answer to society, to, to, to every, every need of the human race, to, 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 to marriages, to, 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 uh, to uh, success at a certain level in, in, in life generally, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he doesn't promise an easy life, but he does promise to be with you. He'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, he'll, be with you, he'll meet all of your needs. He's not going to be a sugar daddy to you, he's not promising an easy life, but he is promise, promising to be there with you. And the only answer to society, every aspect of life, is the person of the Lord Jesus. He's the rock, he's the one on whom we build. If you're not building upon him, you have no foundation in life. He is the foundation of life. He is the, the supreme uh, central figure in the purposes of God. Unless we say so boldly, loudly, clearly, emphatically, refusing to compromise, no matter what happens to us, we will not make any progress. But if we are Elijah's, if we are John the Baptist, there's hope that one day... You see, this is not the first time in British history when things have been so bad. It was, it was true in the 1720s. In the 1720s, there was an Anglican bishop in the 1720s who said... It seems as though Christianity is finished. The common view now, said this Anglican bishop, the common view now is that it's turned out to be a fiction. Nobody believes anymore, it's just some old story. Everybody, everybody's of the opinion it's just a fiction. Christianity is finished, he said in about the 1720s. 1735, a guy who worked in a pub in Gloucester got saved. His name was George Whitfield. 1738, a toffee-nosed, upper-class, pedantic, dictatorial Englishman was saved in Oxford. His name was John Wesley. A couple of men began to preach. And a few others got saved in, in Wales. Hal, Hal Harris in Trevecca and uh, Daniel Rowlands and somewhere else in Wales and Dolan Edwards in America and a few Anglican clergymen. Within about 20 years, they had entirely changed the entire history of Britain. By the 1750s, 30 years later, Britain was the most Christian country in the world. A country where they said Christianity is finished, it's gone, it's forgotten, everybody knows it's a fiction. The country where politicians were boasting in their immoralities and their corruption and their drunkenness, when they were boasting in wickedness and sin. They called it the gin age because gin was so cheap. They called it the gin age. You could, you could go and get, a, get, get drunk at just a couple of pennies. The, the, the day which was famous for its licentiousness, its sin, its wickedness, and Christianity is finished. Within 30 years, it was the most Christian country in the world. Because a few, a few, a handful of men stood for righteousness and preached. When, when George Whitfield preached his first sermon ever in Gloucester Cathedral, they complained to the bishop. People said to the bishop, that preacher, he turned 15 people insane last Sunday. <laughs> the bishop, the bishop replied, long may the insanity last. <laughs> And within a few years, those men had entirely changed the history of Britain. It's happened before. Don't, don't you be afraid of dark days. The Lord likes dark days. Don't you be afraid when the prophets of Baal are everywhere. He, he just wants one Elijah. God likes dark days. He's, he, he, he's not intimidated by Muslims coming in. He's the God who answers by fire. 
He's the God who can totally change it. One verse on one man can entirely change history. When Martin Luther, on the 31st of October, 1517, when Martin Luther put that notice board in Latin upon a church door in Wittenberg, announcing a meeting to discuss the gospel, nobody could read it. It was in Latin. And nobody came to the meeting. He, he nails a, no, a, a notice on a notice board saying, please come and discuss this guy sending, sending forgiveness of sins over the river. And let, let's have a meeting to discuss it. Nobody comes to the meeting. It's in Latin. The ordinary people can't read it. But within a fortnight, someone's translated it into German. And the whole of Germany is reading it. Within a month, the Pope is reading it. Within a year, every major university in, in Europe is reading it. Within a couple of years, the whole of Europe is different. Because one man has put one notice on a church door in Wittenberg for a meeting that nobody comes to. But it changes the whole of church history, the whole of history. You never know what God might do. It could just be one man, one telephone call, one email, one, one, guy who gets put, one guy who gets thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, one person doing one thing, and the whole world can start listening. And within weeks, a, a new nation can be born. Don't, don't think that uh, we're defeated. Oh no, God likes dark days, because that's when the light shines. The light shines in the darkness. John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot put it out. The darkness cannot overcome it. Don't, don't get discouraged. No, no, dark days, in some ways, are better than the easy days, because then the light shines, and everybody can see it.